Good morning. In a political year, we have people that are always giving their opinions on this and that, and half the time we're wrong. But when we come to the Word of God, it's neat to know that this is Him talking, not us. Does any one of you, when he has a case against a neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking wretches like us and forgiving us because of what Jesus did. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for letting us come and hear your word. And I pray that you'll give Tom the words to say and that the Spirit will illuminate us to understand the specific things in our own lives that you want to purify and cleanse so that we can go out and be a reflection of you in the world. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Many of you already know this, but the United States is the litigation capital of the world. And large, affluent cities like, uh, like Dallas are where most of the lawsuits take place. Even though four other countries in the world have more lawsuits per capita per year than the United States, we leave all other countries in the dust when it comes to the actual dollars that are involved in litigation in America. When you combine legal fees and damages awarded to plaintiffs, it comes to $1,000 per American per year. Roughly half of that is legal fees. So you, you know who comes out on top of that deal. In his sermon on this same passage, Alistair Begg points out that uh, civil lawsuits were exceedingly common in first century Corinth. So this is yet another example where modern Dallas is a lot like New Testament Corinth. And they were, they were predominant in all of the affluent communities throughout the Roman uh, Empire. But the Greek culture in Athens and Corinth elevated lawsuits. They put lawsuits in a whole different class because in, in those cities, lawsuits were almost like a spectator sport. They were settled at a judgment seat in the, in the city square. 
And anybody that wanted to come and behold and, and follow the proceedings could. And a lot of people did. Displays of, of persuasive legal rhetoric by attorneys were like TED Talks to the Greeks. And as is often the case today, the civil courts were a stage for survival of the richest, not a place where true justice was to be obtained readily. Our passage in 1 Corinthians 6 flows directly from what Paul said right at the end of chapter 5. After rebuking the Corinthian saints for failing to deal with the sin of gross immorality in the household of God, Paul made it very clear that he was not telling those saints to judge those who are outside of the family of God. He said, do, do you not judge those who are inside the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now in the first half of chapter 6, Paul continues in this same line of thinking with regard to how his people are to handle judgments that involve men. Uh, he starts verses 1 through 6 with a divine How dare you? And he ends those same verses with the divine shame on you. This passage is a stern rebuke that is supposed to get our attention. Paul says, in effect, How dare you who are of the household of God take one another into court to be judged by unbelievers? Now it's painful to realize how quick we are to interpret that as as a command to hide from the world what's actually going on in the church so that somehow the church will look better than it actually is. It's our own worldly thinking that imposes that interpretation on Paul's words. But Paul says nothing of the kind here. This passage is not about putting a false front on what's going on in the church. It's not about hiding anything from anyone. It's about not doing things that would cause us to feel like we need to hide them. It's about who is qualified to judge the children of God. Paul is very straightforward with his point here, and he means exactly what he says. Listen as I read again the first six verses. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. In other words, shame on you. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. I believe Paul's declaration that we, the redeemed saints of God, will judge both the world and angels must be understood as a corporate commission, not an individual commission. In John 5, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said that all judgment, all judgment had been given into His hand by His Father. Quote, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor 
the Father. Our participation in that judgment is true only through our identification with Christ. He's the judge. In Revelation 19, we, the saints of God, will be those who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, who follow Jesus as He smites the nations. It will not be our swords that execute that judgment. It will be, according to that passage, the sharp sword that comes from His mouth. The same sword of the Spirit that Ephesians 6 identifies as the Word of God. Jesus will be the one doing the judging, and His mighty Word, the same all-powerful Word that created and now upholds all things, will judge all of His creation. We think of the Word of God as mightily creative. We need to recognize that the same Word that created will judge. Likewise, in the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation chapter 20, when all of those who have died in unbelief are raised from the grave to be finally judged by Christ, we will be on the judge's side of that judgment seat, not on the judged side. Our part in judging this godless world will be through our union with the judge. He is the one and only Righteous judge of men. All of that serves only to highlight Paul's point here. If we, through our blessed union with Jesus Christ, will one day stand together with Christ in His judgment against unbelievers, why would we go to unbelievers to judge between us in the comparatively trivial matters that are at issue in human lawsuits? It doesn't make any sense. Again, Paul's point here has to do with qualification and competence to render judgment in a dispute between saints. His very straightforward assertion is that courts made up of people who do not know or believe the word of the cross are not qualified to resolve conflicts between people who do know and believe the word of the cross. Why are they not qualified? Well, Paul spent a lot of time answering that question in chapters 1 and 2, didn't he? He said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written by God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. In verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In chapter 2, Paul continued with that same very forceful declaration concerning the wisdom that you and I possess as the children of God. He said it is a wisdom that is entirely foreign to the mindset of this world. He said, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. He said it's wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's a mystery to the world, but it's not a mystery to us because God has made it known to us. And he says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man 
all that God has prepared for those who love Him, these things He has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Paul's question for us in 1 Corinthians 6 is, in effect, would you have those whose wisdom God calls foolishness judge those whose God-sourced wisdom the world calls foolishness? Kind of hard to get a good judgment out of that combination, isn't it? Verse 9 of chapter 2 presents a truth that is foundational to what Paul is saying in this morning's passage. It's, It's a surprising verse. We've heard it several times in the last few weeks, but Paul refers to the wisdom that you and I have received from God as things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now let me ask you this. What part does knowing what God has prepared for us in eternity play in settling conflicts between Christians here and now? Well, the answer is every part. Every part. Our entire grid for understanding what we encounter in this earthly life is built on God's promises about what will happen after this earthly life. It's amazing how many people, and unfortunately how many Christians, interpret their earthly life in such a way that it's like taking a drop of water out of the ocean and thinking that that will tell you everything you need to know about the ocean. The reality is that the only way our grid is correct, the only way that we rightly understand what's going on in our lives is if we look at what God says about eternity. The, the, The eternal line of our soul life in relationship with God. You can't come to the right conclusions if you're looking only here. Our hope, the hope of what God has laid up for us, is the anchor of our souls. And the world knows absolutely nothing of that hope. You've all seen courtroom dramas in which one side or the other brings in an expert witness, right? They do so in the assumption that that expert witness will provide specialized knowledge that the jury needs to know in order to render a just verdict in the case. But what if nobody on the jury is able to understand what the expert witness says about the evidence? even though that very knowledge is required in order for them to to come up with a, a just verdict and a just sentence. If the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and if the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, which is exactly what Paul has said, then how can the world wisely resolve disputes between Christians? This does not mean that God cannot use worldly authorities to execute His justice on earth in the temporal realm. Romans 13 says that every authority that exists on earth is from God. And we are commanded to be subject to those authorities until and unless they command us to do something that God forbids, like happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Paul's point is that those worldly authorities are neither able nor authorized by God to settle conflicts between Christians. Our disputes with one another in the body of Christ get resolved, they get resolved when we assess those conflicts in the light, the brilliant light of God's revealed Word. 
When His Word is brought to bear in our lives, we do revolutionary things that the world considers absolutely insane, but that God declares to be wonderfully wise. We stop seeking to secure and protect well-being for ourselves, and instead we give preference to one another in honor. We devote ourselves to each other's, to another person's well-being. That's Romans 12.10. We stop trusting in money and stuff and people to make it well with our souls. And instead, we know it's already well with our souls. Now and forever, precisely because of all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Our hope. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. We forgive our brothers and sisters of every debt. Every debt. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us of our infinite debt to Him. Ephesians 4.32 And we walk in self-denying love toward our brothers and sisters just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself up for us. Ephesians 5.2 Those are just a few little examples of the revolutionary lifestyle and view of what we deserve uh, that comes out of knowing God's Word. Our one and only standard in all of these uh, these assignments from God is Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 21-23, Peter writes, For you and I have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Beloved, these are not things that any human court will ever, ever say to you. These are the truths that bring real and enduring reconciliation between us as the children of God and that call our lives to be filled with unassailable joy and peace. Joyful people don't think much of taking other people to court. The only people on the earth who will draw our attention back to these things, beloved, are our fellow saints. That is why we bring our disputes before our brothers instead of dragging one another into courts that know only the world's way of thinking. What is by far the most popular category of lawsuit in the United States? It's an easy answer. Divorce. Many divorces are little more than a clerical formality in the courts, but contested divorces make up some of the most ugly lawsuits imaginable. And in my experience, professing Christians are among the very worst when it comes to fortifying their position in their quest for custody over children or over stuff by painting their spouse as a monster. Truth is often the first and the bloodiest casualty in such proceedings. And there's no shortage of other Christians patting those people on those Christians on the back, saying, yeah, you've got to draw those lines and you've got to stick up for yourself. Never mind that Jesus laid down His life for you when you deserved eternal condemnation. 
Imagine what would happen if every Christian couple who was considering divorce resolved to seek the counsel of a mature Christian husband and wife whose marriage had stood the test of time, had proven to be durable and strong, and resolved beforehand to actually do what that couple counseled them to do. You think there'd be fewer divorces in the church? And there'd be a lot of stronger marriages. This goes back to what we were talking about in the worship. We're supposed to seek out wise people in the body of Christ, beloved, and not just wing it based on whatever level of immaturity we happen to possess at any given time. Many of the people in this room have never been involved in a lawsuit, hopefully never will, so you may be wondering if this passage even applies to you. (laughs) Well, it does. The principle behind Paul's powerful exhortation here goes way beyond lawsuits. It goes to the heart of what binds our hearts together as the children of God. You and I have already been given absolutely everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. 1 Peter 1.3 We know how to live in miraculous unity with one another. When we lose sight of the truths that unite us, all of which are about Christ, we don't need a human court to sort us out because they can't. They have neither the authority nor the competence nor even the information to do so. Instead, we need to be brought back to the precious and magnificent promises of God in Jesus Christ. We already know where to find those promises, right? And we already know who will remind us of those promises when we forget them, right? It's not a mystery. Each of you in this room knows people who will speak truth to you when you're a little confused about what you need to do. So let's go there instead of going to court. The personal knowledge of the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel radically transforms everything that we ever think about what is owed to us by human beings. In verse 7 of our passage, Paul drives all of this home with a very sobering statement followed by a couple of stunning questions. Here's the statement. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. God is wonderfully skillful at shooting down our loopholes, right? We find these little workarounds to try to dodge what he's, what he's requiring of us. We might easily look at verses 1 through 6 and then say, well, the reason I'm taking this other Christian to court is because it's not because I want to take something that's rightfully his. It's because I care about justice. God loves justice, so he wouldn't want me to take this kind of treatment from such a sorry excuse for a Christian. He'd want me to demand the justice that's due to me. I'm doing this for the sake of justice and truth, not for my own personal gain. You need to give that guy a t-shirt, well, actually a costume that says JT Man, right? It makes, it makes, it's like he, he sounds like a superhero. But what about the just judgment? What about the just judgment that should rightly fall on you? You want that thrown in too? 
Paul blows away all the nonsense and he cuts right to the chase. He gives us God's assessment of our own wretched logic. When we take a brother or a sister into court, he says, you've already lost. It's already a a defeat for us as God measures victory and defeat. And that's the only measure that matters, isn't it? And then Paul says something that's so antithetical to the world's way of thinking that it gives us whiplash. Listen to these two questions. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Wow. You think the court's going to tell you that? This is revolutionary stuff, beloved. The God who by His own declaration loves justice tells you and me as His children that the injustices of men that are directed against us are His problem. Not that He doesn't care about them, but that He'll deal with them. And He, ex- he commands us not to. When we take, take it into our own hands to secure justice for ourselves, we're taking His seat. And we're getting, we're getting seriously derailed from our commission which is to be his instruments and agents and as he takes care of the justice of other people that's due other people from him, not from people. People don't owe me any justice. He doesn't owe me any justice. But he's a just God who desires to see justice worked out in our lives. Well, he owes me justice. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not the kind we like. When we take the defense of ourselves against injustice into our own hands, we end up doing unjust things to other people. And that's what he says here. We wrong and defraud and we do so even against our own brethren. We use the world to tear down what God has made one. And God takes that very, very seriously. He says, shame on you. Following our Master and Savior means denying self to exalt Christ. My dear mother was a legal secretary from age 17 to age 72, except for a fairly long break when my brother and I were infants, toddlers, and little boys. Mom came to trust in Jesus when she was eight years old, and she wasn't timid when it came to talking about her Savior. As an adult, her love for Christ was well known by all of the lawyers, paralegals, and legal secretaries with whom she worked. She wasn't pushy, but you simply couldn't talk to her about her life (laughs) without hearing about Christ because her life was defined by her relationship with Christ. It's like Bob says, evangelism is just praising God in the presence of unbelievers. My mom was great at that. At one point, somewhere around her early 60s, I'm not very good at remembering those things, she developed a persistent pain in her abdomen. Her family doctor sent her to a gastroenterologist. After the visit, my mom came home. She said it really felt very rushed. He did an initial examination. He ordered no further tests. He said to her it was nothing to be concerned about. He gave her a prescription antacid and sent her home. Several days later... She was in an emergency room near death after her ruptured appendix had escalated into severe peritonitis, bacterial infection of the entire abdominal cavity that was aggressively threatening major organs. 
After extensive surgery, she was in the hospital for five weeks. And it took many, many months for her to get back to anything like a normal daily routine. And then finally back to work at the law firm. At the time, she was employed by a highly respected and very successful law firm in San Antonio. Some of the attorneys in that firm had known my mom since she was late teens. It's no exaggeration to say that my mom was legendary in the legal community in San Antonio because of her extraordinary mastery of her work. And they all knew that she was a Christian. And they all loved her. Even while she was still in the hospital, guys, more than one high-powered attorney that knew her well and more than one medical doctor strongly advised her to file suit against that gastroenterologist. Her answer was always the same. This was her answer, guys. People make mistakes, and that includes me. I'm not going to drag a man into court and mess with his livelihood and his reputation because he had a bad day and a momentary lapse in judgment. If you think that didn't get the attention of the people that she worked for and worked with, think again. It definitely got my attention. It definitely got my brother's attention and my dad's attention and the attention of all of my mom's friends. It's the closest I've ever been to someone who could have probably very handily won the litigation lottery. But my mom would have nothing to do with that way of thinking. You know why? I'll get to that in a minute. You might be wondering whether that doctor was a believer or an unbeliever so so you can know whether this passage applied in that situation. To my mom, her answer was the same either way. Why? Here's why. Because she knew very well what she deserved from God and what she had been given by God. And beloved, nothing will turn your world right side up like knowing the answers to those two questions. What you deserve from God and what you have in Christ been given by God. She knew that her eternal well-being was far more certain than her next breath. She wasn't worried about exacting justice from some fellow sinner as if that would make everything good. It was already good. She was just thankful that because of her Savior, she would never get the justice that God owed her. The full weight of that justice had already fallen entirely on Jesus Christ, her Savior, whom she loved. My point in presenting that real-life example to you is not to say that Christians must never avail themselves of civil courts. I don't have a good answer for when that scenario might apply, but I do have an answer for when it doesn't. I would, I would also, by the way, never say that you should resist or, or fail to comply with a subpoena to appear in court or to present a deposition. God commands us to submit to the authorities that he has placed over us, Romans 13. But there are at least two things that a child of God must never believe about a human court. First, a Christian must never believe that human courts are qualified or competent to resolve disputes between Christians. And second, a Christian must never believe that the outcome of a court case will determine anything at all about his or her well-being. 
I want to spend a little time on the last three very forceful verses of this passage. A great many of the sermons and books that comment on those verses take Paul's words in a direction that I flatly do not believe he ever goes. And I know I'm in the minority on this. That fills me with trepidation. I'll just say to you, test what you hear from my mouth against the Word of God and let God bring you to, the, to, the, to His conclusion. I'm going to read those verses. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Many take those verses as a threat against anyone in the church who fails to repent of behaviors like the ones that Paul just listed. They see the threat essentially in these terms. If you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but you persist in doing the things that disqualify sinners from entry into the kingdom of God, you won't end up in the kingdom of God. To put it more bluntly, if you don't repent of such behaviors, you'll end up in hell, not in heaven even if your profession matches up with Scripture. The same writers and preachers explain that when Paul throws in words of amazing assurance, like he does here in verse 11, and like he always does, he's just letting his audience know that he doesn't expect such a terrible outcome for all of them, but only for those who don't heed the call to turn away from the sins that he just listed. I respect the teachers and preachers who hold to, to that view. And I listen to their messages and I read their messages very often with great benefit to my own understanding of many passages. But I couldn't possibly disagree more strongly with that interpretation. If your purpose is to warn your audience that a, that a pattern of behavior, if not decisively put to an end, will ensure them a place in hell... It eviscerates the force of that warning to then declare of that same audience that they have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Because if you're washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Christ, Paul already said what that means for your eternal destiny. It means that that destiny is reserved in heaven with God. It's got to be one or the other. It can't be both. If we just compare verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 with verses 9 through 11 of the same chapter, in other words, if we let Paul finish this passage using the same words in the same way that he was using them at the beginning of the passage, I believe his meaning is unambiguous. Here are verses 1 and 2 together with verses 9 through 11. Listen, please listen. Does any one of you when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Beloved, I do not believe Paul is threatening any of his readers with hell because he wrote this book just like he wrote all of his epistles and just like all of the epistles in the New Testament, all the writers of the New Testament epistles wrote to the saints. They all say that right up front and they mean it. He's writing, he doesn't mean there's no one mixed in that isn't a saint. It means the ones he's talking to are the saints. He's not threatening his readers with hell. He's shaming them for taking their disputes before people who have no part in the kingdom of God. When they, the people to whom he's writing, are those who have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and who are eternally destined for the kingdom of God. Paul presents this same appeal for godly behavior on the part of his readers over and over and over in his letters, and it always follows the same pattern. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, listen to this verse. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, he commands his readers, whom he has repeatedly called his beloved brethren, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, quote, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Does that make their destiny uncertain or certain? That statement, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, goes back to Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, after you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We're supposed to know, beloved, that when we heard the message and believed the message, we were eternally saved. In Ephesians chapter 5, right after saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Paul rebukes those same saints for participating in ungodly behaviors that contradict the calling and identity and destiny that he spent the first half of the letter assuring them that they all possess because of their faith in Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what the first three chapters are about. And then much as he does in 1 Corinthians 6, he says to those saints in Ephesians 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. See, it's the same wording. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Everyone before they come to faith. And then he said, listen, please listen. Then he says, therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what is his rationale? What is the basis of his appeal to Christians not to do deeds of darkness? Because they're not of the darkness, they're of the light. There's nothing cryptic or hard to understand about this appeal. He means what he says, not what we in our endless discomfort over the grace of God freely given to ungodly people feel compelled to make him mean. Paul absolutely does not say and never says, turn away from the deeds of darkness you professing Christians, because if you don't, you will prove yourselves to be children of darkness condemned to hell. Instead, he says unambiguously, 
turn away from the deeds of darkness that consign lost people to hell because you are children of light. Sealed by the Holy Spirit to dwell with God forever. So walk as children of light. If you say, if you say, well, that's not scary enough to get me to change my behavior, then what actually should scare you, Christian, is your ingratitude. If you have no fear of grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for God's courts above, if you have no fear of treating the precious blood of Christ by which you you were redeemed as if it's not worthy to control all of your behavior, if you have no fear of the shame that your unrepentant sin brings on the holy name of Jesus Christ and His people, if you have no fear of the scourging that inevitably comes from the hand of God against His ungrateful and disobedient children if they are unrepentant, then brother or sister, you need to know that the scourging you are already receiving from your Father's loving hand will not relent until He has convinced you that the most fearsome thing that will ever touch your life is the cleansing, sanctifying, justifying blood of Jesus Christ by which you have been forever saved. I'm going to close with a passage that brings that God brings me back to over and over. A passage that makes the exact point I've just been making far better than I could ever make it. It's not from Paul. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. I'm going to ask you to listen very carefully. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then listen especially to this part. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your stay on this earth. Knowing that, knowing that, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Dear Father, we pray that we won't just make a glancing blow off a powerful passage like this one and then move on to the next thing without giving it very earnest and prayerful consideration. We want to be children who find our well-being entirely in You and who entrust ourselves to the One who always judges justly. We want to be done with all of our own devices that frantically seek to lay hold of things that can never satisfy when we have been given already the unfathomable riches of Christ. 
We confess that Jesus is the only advocate that we will ever need. Teach us to look to no one else. We ask it in his incomparable name. Amen.